You know, among the many things mastered by Aristotle was the power of persuasion, the art of persuasion. Remember that Aristotle was the great philosopher, the great teacher, the orator, the writer, the mathematician, as well as a master of logic in ancient Greece. And you have to understand, Aristotle was brilliant. I mean, he was way, way ahead of his time. And in the long list of things that he mastered in his life was the power to persuade people, to win an argument, to win a debate, to prove your case, to persuade people to believe and sway them to your view. He mastered that methodology. And he said that to win an argument, there are three things that you have to have. He called them modes of persuasion modes of persuasion, and he said there are three, three things you need to win an argument and get people to change their mind. Aristotle said that you need ethos, you need pathos, and you need logos. You get those three things and you win the argument, ethos, pathos, and logos. Ethos simply means that you convince people of your credibility, that you can be trusted and that you know what you're talking about. Second, to win a debate, you need pathos. Pathos, that is, you appeal to human emotions. You get people to, to uh, think with their passions, to feel deeply about the subject in question. And then number three, to win an argument, you need logos, meaning logic, meaning you need reason, deductions, claims, and evidence. In other words, you make a claim, you back it up with facts. You make a proposition, you back it up with evidence. That right there is the Aristotelian power of persuasion. To win a case, prove a point, you need ethos, pathos, and logos. So what? <laughs> I mean, that's kind of interesting, I guess. And maybe that'll be helpful for winning a debate in the philosophical realm. But I'll just have you know that the stakes are way higher in the spiritual realm. What I mean is if you want to persuade sinners to repent, for instance. If you want to convince slaves of sin, spiritually dead, to yield their lives in repentance and faith, you're going to need bigger guns than Aristotle. Aristotelian logic is not going to cut it for you. I don't care how much ethos, pathos, or logos you have. It's never going to work. You're never going to get people to repent using mere human logic and persuasion. Rather, what you need is the spiritual logic of the prophet Isaiah. What you need is the prophet Isaiah's power of persuasion, who, like Aristotle, uses three components to awaken his people from their spiritual slumber. And this morning, that's exactly what you're going to see, the logic, powerful logic of the prophet Isaiah. Because where we find ourselves this morning is the final chapter in a series of chapters that I'm calling the Little Apocalypse. The Little Apocalypse, which means there's a big apocalypse. And the big apocalypse is the book of Revelation, which means Isaiah 24 through 27 is the entire book of Revelation squeezed into four chapters. And what this is, is a high def blue ray display of how God is going to crush the world in the hammer of his wrath and how he is going to rebuild the world in the glory of his kingdom. In other words, what Yahweh gives his people in days of danger and times of terror is not merely theology, but in particular, eschatology. Glorious visions of how the world is going to end and begin again. And you know why he does this, don't you? Why he tips his hand and reveals the future? Why he appointed prophets to write and preach, to, to display what he planned for the end of the age? You know exactly why this is in our Bibles. He gives this to us to free his people, to liberate his people, to emancipate his people. To unleash in you radical hope, invincible faith, and unconquerable joy to help us see that we literally have nothing to lose in living our lives fully for his glory. In living our lives in reckless abandon to Jesus Christ. Nothing to lose. Because the outcome is secure. You understand our courage 
and faith to face the terrors of a fallen world are only as strong as our eschatology is precise. Where the end times are not known and cherished and treasured and valued and studied and loved and declared there are a people haunted by the horrors of a fallen world. And if Isaiah was gonna, could help it, he was not about to let that happen to his people, and the elders of this church are not about to let that happen to you. And you understand chapter 27, the final installment of the little apocalypse, this, this little, this final episode, this has a very unique contribution to the whole because what this, song, what this chapter is, is a song. It's a song. And yet it's a very logical song. It's a very rational song. It's a very reasonable song. Put it this way, it is logic put to music. It is logic in lyrical form designed to persuade the apostate people of God to repent and be reconciled to Yahweh and in so doing be included in the Messiah's kingdom at the end of the age. You see, this is logical theology. This is musical doctrine. This is the ultimate power to persuade a people to repent and trust in Yahweh alone. So here we go. Let's go to the text and let's see the lyrical logic of the prophet Isaiah. Here's where we're going this morning. I want you to see from our text three fundamental ways. Three fundamental ways to move a people to repentance and trust in Yahweh alone. That's where we're headed. Three fundamental ways to persuade a people to repent and trust in Yahweh alone. And this eschatological song breaks down into three parts. Part number one, I'm calling the reprise of the vineyard. The reprise of the vineyard. Because you know what a reprise is, don't you? A reprise means a return. It means a repeat. It means the reoccurrence and a repetition of a song that has already been played. That's a reprise. And the song in Isaiah 27 is a song about a vineyard. Or should I say, it is the people of Israel portrayed as a vineyard. That's the song. And yet, if this is a song about the vineyard of Israel, and it is, then that means that this song has already been sung in the book of Isaiah. And it has been sung all the way back in chapter 5. And yet that song in chapter 5 was not a happy song at all. Rather, it was a tragic one, if not downright depressing. Put to the tune of a minor key, the song in chapter 5 recounts the very checkered and dirty past of the people of Israel, planted by Yahweh like a vine, expecting it to bear much fruit and display his glory to the world. The nation of Israel instead withered and shriveled from the pesticides of sin and idolatry. And so what did Yahweh promise to do in the song but to rip out that vine and to throw it in the fire? In other words, judgment and wrath to come for the people of Israel. And it did come. And that's the song of chapter 5. And yet the reprise here in chapter 27 is a totally different animal. In fact, it is the opposite of that. You see, there is still hope for the people of Israel. There is. Because of the glorious covenants God made with them, there is still a kingdom future for the chosen seed of Israel's race. In fact, they will receive every single covenant promise God ever made to the people of Israel because the gifts and calling of God are irrevocable. You see, they will be the fruitful vine. They will receive everything God predestined to give them. And although Israel does not deserve a happy ending, they will, by his grace, receive one, and so will we. And yet here's what's really interesting is that before the song actually begins, there's a bit of a prelude. Let's call it the final round of a fight that began in a garden. Look at verse 1. In that day, Isaiah says, Yahweh will punish with his sharp and great and mighty sword, the Leviathan, the slippery serpent, the Leviathan, the coiling serpent, and he will slay the dragon that is in the sea. 
Now, that verse doesn't surprise you at all, does it? That you would see a verse like that in a book like Isaiah? Because Daniel, Ezekiel, Zechariah, and especially the book of Revelation all use monsters and beasts as vivid metaphors to portray apocalyptic events coming in the future. This is not new to us. We've seen this before. And yet, in every single one of those contexts in which we see monsters and beasts appear, the question is always, what do those things mean? What do those symbolize? What what are they metaphors of? What is it exactly that they picture and portray? That's the question. And I'll have you know that scholars are all over the map when it comes to the meaning of Isaiah 27, verse 1. In fact, as many flavors there are of Ben and Jerry's ice cream, there are that many views about the meaning of Isaiah 27, 1. Because look what you've got here. Look at the text. You've You've got a creature called Leviathan, mentioned twice, You've got a slippery serpent. You've got a coiling serpent. You've got this dragon that is this hideous dragon who lives in the sea, slaughtered by Yahweh at some time in the future. I mean, what is this, Lord of the Rings? What is this, Chronicles of Narnia? This is the, the study of mythical creatures here. What is this exactly that we're seeing? Well, here's the thing. Here's the thing about these monsters in the text. Listen carefully. Every single one of these creatures... The Leviathan, the serpent, and the dragon are all borrowed from pagan mythology. I mean, the serpent comes from a Genesis 3-2. That's true, too. But here in this context, these things are all borrowed from pagan mythology, from Canaanite, Ugaritic, and Babylonian mythology that was well-known by everybody in that day. Now, to be clear, that does not mean that Isaiah believed in that mythology, but you see what he's doing is he's using mythology to illustrate theology. He's using the language of mythology just like we do every single day of our lives to make a point. For instance, Achilles' heel, Trojan horse, the Midas touch, Pandora's box, rising from the ashes. What is that? That's pagan Greek mythology, and we use it every single day. And that's exactly what Isaiah is doing. You see, he uses the language of pagan stories to illustrate what God is going to do at the end of the age, not to some mythological creature, but to a diabolical creature still yet to be killed in the future, which means, yes, I do believe this verse pictures and portrays the slaughter of Satan himself. And I have three reasons for that. Three evidences, three proofs for why I believe this to be a portrayal of the destruction of Satan himself. Evidence number one, the context. The context. And the context of this verse is Isaiah 24 through 27. And the context of Isaiah 24 through 27 is the future. It is eschatology. It is revealing events to come in the future at the end of the age. In fact, this verse here picks up right where chapter 26 ends, which not only portrays the terrors of the tribulation, but also the resurrection of God's people at the end of history. And notice there in verse 1, Isaiah says, In that day, in that day, Yahweh will punish the serpent and slay the dragon. And you know that phrase, in that day. You know what that is? That is code for eschatology. It's a signal for end times. So number one, the context is eschatological. Reason number two, why I believe this to be a portrayal of the slaughter of Satan. Number two, the language. The language. You see, the language that Isaiah used here not only borrows the imagery of Canaanite mythology, he also preserves the conventions of Canaanite poetry. What I mean is, you look at the text... And there's actually only one creature in the text, not three. There's one creature in the text, not three. Although it looks like there's a Leviathan, two Leviathans perhaps, and both resemble snakes. And although there is also a dragon who lives in the sea, understand this, the common convention of Canaanite poetry in that day was to use three different descriptions to describe the exact same thing. The Leviathan is the serpent, is the dragon. And guess what? The Apostle John preserves this very convention in Revelation 20 when he says that the dragon, the ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, will be bound for a thousand years. Do you hear that? It's all coming together. 
And what John is doing in Revelation 20 is alluding and even quoting Isaiah 27, verse 1. The final reason why I believe this to be the destruction of the dragon himself is number three, the correlation. The correlation. What I mean is, is that the order of events portrayed by Isaiah are the exact order of events portrayed by the book of Revelation. The tribulation terrors, followed by the arrival of the king, followed by the slaying of the dragon, the rescue of Israel, and the building of a kingdom. It all matches up and correlates together. And so what this single verse does, you understand. What Isaiah 27 verse 1 does is remind us again of the ancient promise of a redeemer to come and crush the head of the serpent. You remember that, don't you? Genesis 3.15. That one would emerge from the human race and he would crush the head of the serpent. That's what this is. And you know that at the cross, the serpent was defanged. At the resurrection, the serpent was declawed. And at the second coming, the king of kings will land the final punch and the dragon will be drowned in the lake of fire forever. And the smoke of his torment will ascend forever and ever and we will not weep for him. That's what Isaiah 27, 1 is portraying for us. And you understand this is very practical. It's very logical too, isn't it? To portray the destruction of the evil one. Because what it does, what it does is remind us is that if you belong to Christ, all the roaring lion can actually do to you is roar. He doesn't have any teeth to bite you with. Now, don't get me wrong, a wounded dragon is still a dangerous dragon, to be sure. But in Jesus Christ, the only two weapons that he ever had against you have been ripped from his diabolical claws. And what he had against you was unforgiven sin and the fear of death. That's it. And if you are in Christ, both of those things are gone. Do you see? And what that does is give us perspective. Prince of darkness, grim. We tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word, or should I say, sword, will slay him. So it only makes perfect sense that after depicting the destruction of the dragon, that the very next thing, the very next thing that Isaiah would show us in the text is the restoration of Israel. Because that's exactly what he does. That's the exact order of events that will happen in the future. Christ will return. Satan will be bound. Israel will be restored. And you've heard the song before in a minor key. Hear the song, hear again the song of the vineyard, this time to the tune of sovereign grace. Look at verses 2 through 6. Here is the reprise of the vineyard song. Isaiah says, in that Day, there it is again, don't miss that. It's code for prophecy. That's a signal for eschatology in that day. Sing of the delightful vineyard. I, Yahweh, was its keeper. Literally, I was preserving it. For ages, I was watering it. Lest anyone should harm it night and day, I was preserving it. I have no wrath. Whoever should bring me thorns and thistles in the war, I will trample them. I will burn them together. Or let him rely upon me as a stronghold. Let him make peace with me. Let him make peace with me. Verse 6, the days which are coming, notice carefully, Jacob will take root, he will produce blossoms, Israel will bear fruit, and they will fill all the world with abundance. And there it is. The reversal of everything chapter 5 describes. And in fact, in that first song, Israel was depicted as a vineyard, planted on a fertile hill, chosen and loved by the gardener. 
There was nothing that the vineyard needed that the gardener didn't supply. He, he fertilized it with grace. He irrigated it with truth. He protected them by his power. It should have been a harvest that brought his glory to the nations. I mean, you understand the whole point of Israel was that their role was to be a channel of blessing to the nations, to the ends of the earth. But in chapter 5, verse 2, the only thing the vineyard produced was worthless grapes. The sour grapes of idolatry and spiritual adultery and sin. And so what did the gardener do in the first song in chapter 5? What did he say that he was going to do? But knock out the walls, rip out the hedges, let thorns and briars grow, no more water, no more rain. The worthless vineyard would be trampled by the wild beasts. And the song in chapter 5 ends like this. He says, for the vineyard of Yahweh of hosts is the house of Israel. And the men of Judah are his delightful plant. He hoped for righteousness and behold unrighteousness. He hoped for justice, but instead, injustice. Didn't work out. And although it did and does look hopeless for the people of Israel, it looks over for them, here again is the reprise of the vineyard. Here it is. At the end of the age, in that day, verse 2, sing of a delightful vineyard. Do you see the change? A delightful vineyard. Because you thought, you thought the vineyard was dead. You thought it was gone. You thought it was dried up. You thought it was withered, didn't you? But lo, verse 3, I, Yahweh, was preserving it. For the ages I was watering it. Lest anyone harm it night and day, I was preserving. And I mean, you think about what this is. This is a song sung by Yahweh in the future, looking back on history. And what he says is, my chosen people, they looked like a vacant lot, to be sure. Withered and scorched by the sun. But I assure you, every moment of history, I was watering my vineyard. Meaning through the ages, Yahweh was still protecting them and preserving Israel and loving his apostate people, even during the time of the judges, even during the siege of the Babylonians, even during the invasion of the Romans, even during the Holocaust, even during Stalinist Russia. And even now, in their current unbelief and hostility against the gospel, Yahweh says, night and day, I preserve my people. Because God will, as promised in Isaiah 2, 6, 10, 11, 35, and 60 through 62, as well as the rest of the Bible, God will save a remnant of Israel, and he will restore them to the land forgiven and redeemed, he will. And in that day, verse 4, Yahweh will sing, I have no wrath. I'm not angry anymore. I'm not angry at my people anymore. The wrath is gone. And how? How does that happen? How does wrath get removed? How do sins get forgiven? How does that happen? You know, only through the sin-bearing death of Jesus Christ. And so what this is lurking in the background is Israel's faith in their own Messiah. The song goes on in verse 4, not only will God's anger be appeased, but no more thorns or, or briars or thistles in the vineyard. The exact opposite of chapter 5, verse 6, which says that there would be thorns and briars in the vineyard, meaning no more threats, no more dangers anymore to afflict them. If there are any, he will, he will crush them under his feet and throw them into the fire. I mean, you see what this is, don't you? This is a musical prophecy of the future of Israel. And it's not just promising. This is magnificent. So the only thing, the only thing to do when hearing this song in Isaiah's day would be 
to repent and yield your life in submission to Yahweh, which is exactly what verse 5 calls for. Look at the text. Or, instead of being trampled underfoot, let him seize upon me as a stronghold. Let him make peace with me. Let him make peace with me. You know what that is? That's a summons to repent. That, that, that's a summons to flee to Yahweh and be reconciled to him as the treasure of the soul. That's what it means to make peace with God. You agree to his terms in full. And by grace alone, through faith alone, in allegiance to God alone, you are mercifully spared the wrath that you deserve, and you are granted every eternal blessing that Yahweh has to give, included in which is a global kingdom at the end of the age in which every promise God ever made to Israel will be fulfilled, which is verse 6, case in point. Look at the text. The days which are coming, look at the text, the days which are coming, Jacob will take root, they will produce blossoms, Israel will bear fruit, and they will fill all the earth with abundance. Do you hear the rich agricultural language? Take root. Produce blossoms, bear fruit, fill the earth with abundance. You know what this is? This is a botanical way to say that Israel will have everything God promised to give them. This is the fulfillment of the covenants. I mean, and you take a step back and you see what this is, don't you? This is the effectual power of sovereign grace. This is the beauty of sovereign grace. Grace. I mean, God chose his people, Israel, to be his special possession, did he not? To be his chosen vineyard? To bear fruit to the ends of the earth? And you see, the nature, the nature of electing grace is that it is, in its essence, unconditional. Every kingdom promise that God ever guaranteed to the nation of Israel will be granted to them. And you see, therein lies the logic. There is the power of persuasion to persuade these people to repent and trust in Yahweh alone, namely, that the Lord is faithful. The Lord is dependable. That he can, and he should, and he must be trusted. And so, little church, if you have any doubts this morning, about the faithfulness or dependability of God, the people of Israel is proof. They're the proof. You see, the reason why this song even matters to you is because your faith is inseparably intertwined with theirs. The hope extended to Israel is foundational to your own hope in Christ because it is one and the same hope. God keeping his promises to them is the guarantee that he will keep his promises to you. And so think about it. This song, this song applies to you, not because you are Israel, but because in Christ, you already have what God promised to give them and that they do not yet possess. You are not the vineyard of Israel but you are the bride of Christ. He will turn his wrath away from Israel in the future, but in Christ, he has already removed his wrath from you. It is not over your heads anymore. You don't need to make peace with God at all, do you? Because in his son, that peace with God has already been made. And what that is, is the death of our fears and the foundation of our joy. Which brings us to part two of the song. Part two, the reason for vengeance. The reason for vengeance. We saw the reprise of the vineyard, now the reason for vengeance. And you know, it seemed, it seemed that word began to spread upon, among the people of Judah. The opinion began to grow among the people of Judah that Yahweh had been unfair to them. That he was harsh and heavy-handed. 
that the punishments the prophets predicted in the future, like getting invaded and conquered and taken into exile as slaves, that that was excessive and over the top, they felt. You see, their complaint, you understand, was that Yahweh lacked grace. And that his punishments for them were way more severe than for the nations who hated God. And so needless to say, Yahweh's popularity was plummeting in the polls. And to counter those claims and to silence the slander, Isaiah argues, get this, Isaiah argues that the vengeance upon God's people was not only completely deserved, but also filled with mercy. The defense of Yahweh's honor begins in verse 7. Look at the text. Like the striking of him who struck them, has he struck them? Or like the slaughter of his slain, have they been slain? Now, I know that sounds a little cryptic, but this really packs a punch. You see, what this is is a question, and what it is is a rhetorical question, meaning the answer is obvious. And the anticipated answer to the question is no. No, God has not and will not punish his people in the same way or with the same severity as he will punish the nations who refuse to repent. Because that's the question. The question is, did God strike his people in the same way that he struck the nations? Will he slaughter his own people to the extent and severity that he will slaughter the nations of the world that he did not choose? Do you see the question here? The people say, yes, Isaiah says, no. No, God will punish you and he will crush you, but it will not at all be the same as his punishment and crushing of the nations that he did not choose and refuse to repent because if Yahweh had done that, the people of Israel, frankly, would cease to exist. You see, all that God has ordained to fall upon his people Israel, the worst of which is still to come in the tribulation, is still filled with astonishing mercy. Everything that he has ordained to come upon his people Israel is filled with affection and grace. Why? Because his, his, his punishments are not designed to exterminate them but to purify them and bring them to repentance. Look at verses 8 and 9. Verse 8 predicts the vengeance to come. Verse 9 gives the reason for that vengeance. Look at the text, verse 8. He says, you, God, will contend with them, with Israel, by banishing them, by driving them away. He will expel them with his fierce breath in the day of the east wind. That's the vengeance. That's the punishment to come upon the people of Israel. And it has come, by the way, since this has been written. And it was the most dreaded severe punishment that they could have imagined in their minds, namely exile. Exile. That was the worst. Invasion by a foreign army. Conquered. Murdered. Ravaged stolen, pillaged, taken in handcuffs and chains, and taken into that foreign country as slaves. And you can see it in the language. Look at the text. God will banish them. He will send them away. He will drive them out. He will expel them in the gust of his anger. This is exile. And I know that your version might seem to put this, might put this in the past tense, like this had already happened in Isaiah's day, but it hadn't. The grammar and the context argue that this is still future, and yet I need to say this. Since Isaiah has written this, this very exile predicted here in verse 8 has, in fact, happened. And I'll have you know, they are still in that exile, even as we speak. You might think, how can that be? <laughs> there's, there's a country called Israel, and Jews live there. Yeah, but not under any of the conditions promised in the covenants. They kind of live there. Kind of. You see, in Isaiah's day and in ours, 
none of the promises that God made in the covenants are fulfilled. None of them. Not fully fulfilled. You remember God promised Israel a land, a kingdom, a king ruling the world from that kingdom. God promised them freedom and peace from enemies. He promised them new, regenerated hearts that love and serve Yahweh. He promised them a place of prominence in the earth as God's instrument to bring blessing to the nations. And none of that was true in Isaiah's day, nor in ours. Because they blew it with their sin and their idolatry. The people of Israel were and are currently in widespread sin and unbelief. They hate and have rejected their own Messiah. They are scattered all over the land, all over the planet, not in their own land. In fact, more people, more Jews live outside the land of Israel than live inside the land. And speaking of the land, they have about half, less than half of the land originally promised to the people of Abraham. The point is, the global exile that would scatter the Jews all over the planet is the very one that Isaiah describes here in verse 8. And it is the very one Moses predicted all the way back in Deuteronomy 28. You see, exile is the vengeance that would come. Exile is the vengeance that has come. And that is the very reason why the people of Israel complained that Yahweh lacked grace, that his punishments were excessive and over the top. This isn't fair. The punishment doesn't fit the crime. How can you do this? You've gone too far. And yet what they did not understand, listen carefully, is that the punishments of God upon them were never intended to wipe them out of existence, but to win them to repentance and redeem them by sovereign grace. That's why. Look at verse 9. Here's the reason for God's vengeance, the reason, the design of his vengeance in the lives of his people. Look at the text. Therefore, through this, through what? Through punishment, through judgment, through exile, through anger, the iniquity of Jacob will be atoned. Do you see it? And this is the price for all, for the removal of their sin. When he appoints all of the stones of the altar to be like the shattered stones of a heap, the asherim and the incense altars will not stand. Do, do you see this? The divine design of the wrath of God upon the people of Israel was the atonement of their iniquity and the removal of their sin. Do you see this? That's the purpose of the exile. Not that the punishment itself would atone for their sin, but it would drive them eventually to the Messiah who alone could atone for their sin. I mean, this is the full-on repentance and salvation of the nation of Israel. This is exactly what Paul describes in Romans chapter 11. Do you remember that? Talking about their current state of unbelief, and he says, Behold, behold the kindness and severity of God. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of this mystery, that a partial hardening has happened to the people of Israel until the full number of the Gentiles should come in and then all Israel will be saved. See how he differentiates between Gentiles and Israel? After the full number of the Gentiles come in, then all Israel will be saved. As it has been written, a deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this is my covenant I will make with them when I forgive their sins. For the gifts and calling of God are irrevocable. That's exactly what Isaiah is talking about. And driving them to repent and embrace their Messiah and get their sins forgiven and atoned is exactly what Isaiah is talking about. So in answer to their question, their accusations about God being harsh and over the top, the answer comes back at 1,000 RPMs, no. No, 
God's judgment upon you was never intended to destroy you, but to deliver you. It was never intended to remove you out of existence, but to drive you to repentance. This happened to you, not to obliterate you, but to break your heart and to bring you to the Savior. It's just that the path it took to get you there was centuries of pain. Why does this matter? Does this matter? And it 100% does, church. You see, I'll have you know that if you are in Christ, listen carefully, if you are in Christ, this is the exact same motivation in God for every hard and painful thing that he brings into your life also. Because those things are all from him. Every trial, every affliction, every pain, every, even every inconvenience, even if you are afflicted with the thorn of Satan, it was God who put it in his hand. And yet what you can never forget, and never ever forget, is that if you belong to Christ, you are a son and daughter of the living God. And that is the interpretive lens through which you are to use to make sense of all of your afflictions. Don't you see, in Christ, pain and trials are not evidence of God's anger for you, but yet another manifestation of his grace. In Christ, all misery flows from his mercy. All afflictions flow from God's affections. All suffering is but surgery on the soul to remove those things that prevent us from being supremely satisfied in him. Let's put it this way. The purpose of pain is pleasure. The purpose of pain is pleasure. Not pleasure in the pain, but pleasure in the one who brought the pain. John Newton said that all chastisements are tokens of God's love. And he's right. And the reason they are is because all affliction is a favor from God to drive you to his word so that in and through his word you can taste and see the supremacy of his son. Don't you see, in Christ, God is not angry with you. He's not. It's exactly the opposite. It's that his love is willing to go to such great lengths to help you find your deepest joy and satisfaction in him. Let me give you some added perspective on this. I'm not done. Added perspective. If you belong to Christ, your pain is as close to the hell you will never experience. And if you don't know Christ, your pain is a preview of the hell that you will experience. Unless, of course, you repent. Repent and, and fling yourself by faith into the open arms of the great Savior King who did not come to make good people better but to make dead people alive. To awaken sinners from spiritual death. To rescue sinners from the dungeons of iniquity. To save ruined sinners from eternal woe and despair and reconcile them to God. And at this very moment, the Lamb of God stands and he summons you to repent. The king of Zion stands in heaven and he calls for your allegiance. And there he stands full of pity, full of love, ready to save, ready to apply the proceeds of his death to anyone who call out to him in repentance and faith. And so if you have not done so, don't blow this off. This might be the last time you ever hear the gospel. come to him in repentance and faith. Because you understand, 
moving his apostate people to repentance is exactly what Isaiah is trying to do. He, he labors here with lyrical logic to persuade his people that their sin and their idolatry and their complaints against God were completely irrational. This is going to be a little cryptic, but look where he goes in verses 10 and 11. He says, for the invincible city will lie desolate. It will be a deserted abode and abandoned like the wilderness. Notice a city, a city. There is a city there. There the calf will graze and there it will lie down and feed on its branches. When its, its limbs dry up, they will be broken and the women who come to kindle fire in it for they are not a people of understanding. Therefore, their maker will not have compassion on them and their creator will not be gracious to them. You read that and you're saying, what, what is happening? It seems like it's convoluted at first, but it, the point is really profound. You remember that I said that one of the complaints that the people had against Yahweh is that he had a heavy hand. That his judgments lacked grace. That he was way harsher on his own people than he ever was on the nations who hate him and refuse to repent. That he was lenient on the pagans and took it easy on them. And yet what Isaiah said in verses 10 and 11 explodes that foolish notion. It explodes that notion because you might remember in chapter 24, 25... And in 26, Isaiah makes mention of a particularly wicked city that God will destroy in the future. Do you remember this? Does this sound at all familiar? I mean, these, chop these chapters do talk about the destruction of cities, plural. But there is a particular city, singular, globally prominent and wicked enough to come on the scene of human history and it is so wicked and so vile that in the kingdom we will sing about its annihilation. And here is the city again in verses 10 and 11. In every chapter of Isaiah's little apocalypse, he mentions this city and like I mentioned before, I think it's Babylon. Babylon 2.0. A revived version of Babylon coming in the future, and it will be the capital city of a one world, one religion, one, econ one world economy. And the reason why I think that is because Revelation 17 and 18 says so. And it will be so wicked that we will celebrate its destruction when it is nuked to the ground by the fire of God's wrath. And speaking of its annihilation, that's exactly what's described. Look at verse 10. This invincible city will be abandoned, desert, deserted, desolate, leveled to the ground. Almost everyone will be dead. And, and wild animals will fill the city, which is a common picture of judgment in the prophets. Verse 11, this gloomy picture of homeless women left in the city, gathering sticks to make a fire, trying to survive. And look how verse 11 ends, describing the city their maker, or the people in the city, their maker will not have compassion on them and their creator will not be gracious to them. Do you see what this is? Do you see how this silences the objection that the people of Israel had? The point is, Judah's accusations about God treating the nations better than he treated them were foolish and illogical. You see, what he's saying here is that, is that if God really dealt with Israel the way he is going to deal with the wicked nations who refuse to repent, if that's true, then that means that Israel one day would no longer exist and he would wipe them off the face of the planet. That's what he's saying. But he won't do that. He won't do that to them. Because you see, all God has been to the people of Israel and all he has been to us is gracious. All he has been to Israel and all he has been to us is merciful. Even when sending armies to conquer them, even when sending pain in our lives, it's all still grace. It's all still mercy to drive us to his word and give us deeper and deeper experiences of his own sufficiency. But when
when God intervenes to obliterate Babylon off the planet, he will not be merciful to them. And he will not be gracious to them. There's a difference. And this gives us perspective, doesn't it? It really does. I think of the old hymn on the sovereignty of God, which says, judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. For behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. Can you believe that this morning? That in all of your afflictions and pains and difficulties and challenges, that behind those things, it was sent by a father with a smiling face. A smile of love, a smile of compassion. Not a smile of mockery or scorn or I can't wait to see how this hurts. A smile of love. Can you trust this morning that every situation in your life beyond your ability to bear is a gift from the Lord to trust him for his grace? Can you believe that all scenarios in your life that make you anxious are a favor from God to drive you to his word so that in and through his word, he can give you the peace that surpasses comprehension. And you know, don't you? You know that what we need most in days of danger and times of terror is knowing that there will come a time when there will be no more days of danger. And it's called the kingdom. And it's what we see in part three of the song. And then we're done. Part three of the song, I'm, recall, I'm calling the reminder of victory. We have the reprise of the vineyard, the reason for vengeance, and number three, the reminder of victory. Because you, you remember the book of Exodus, right? You remember the Exodus in the book of Exodus? Pretty noteworthy event. Nation of Israel, fresh out of Egypt, nowhere to run, nowhere to hide cornered at the Red Sea, Pharaoh in massive pursuit, a massive army ready to annihilate them. And what does Yahweh do? You remember he parts the waters, Israel escapes, and when the time was right, he crushed the Egyptian army and drowned them in the waves. Okay? We well, have to understand that was the definitive event that defined them as a people. It was. And God never, ever let them forget that uh, uh, about them. In fact, centuries later, they were still referred to as the people delivered by Yahweh at the Exodus. But you see, I am persuaded that God orchestrated that entire deliverance at the Exodus all to be a preview, get this, of a new and greater Exodus to come at the end of the age. And we see it in the text. Look at verses 12 and 13. And it will be in that day, need I say it? The code for prophecy in that day, Yahweh will begin his threshing from the waters of the Euphrates until the river of Egypt. And you will be gathered one by one, O sons of Israel. In that day, a great trumpet will be blown. And those, those who are lost in the land of Assyria and the outcasts in the land of Egypt will come and they will worship Yahweh on this holy mountain in Jerusalem. Do you see the exodus? The new and greater exodus like the first, but better than the first because they're not just delivered from one nation and it only mentions two nations here, but you look at all over the Old Testament and it's clear that this is a global exodus from all of the nations. Verse 12. Like harvesting wheat, God will scour the nations and he will get his people Israel one by one. Verse 13, look what it says. A great trumpet will be blown and the Jewish people enslaved in foreign lands will be freed. And here is the new exodus. End of the verse. Verse 13, look at the text. And those lost in the land of Assyria and the outcast in the land of Egypt will come and they will bow down. They will worship Yahweh on this holy mountain in Jerusalem. And there it is. The great exodus to come. 
the great restoration of a later greater exodus from the nations. And this is everywhere in the Bible. Listen carefully to Deuteronomy 30. This is in a context of eschatology in Deuteronomy. It says, Yahweh, your God, will return your captives, and he will have compassion on you, and he will, he will bring you back, and he will gather you from all of the peoples where Yahweh, your God, scattered you, and he will bring you to the land which your fathers possessed, and you will possess it, and he will be good to you, and he will multiply you more than your fathers. What is that? That has not happened yet. Ezekiel 36, 24, context of eschatology. God says, I will take you from the nations and I will gather you from all the lands and I will bring you into your own land. And when he does that, the covenant with Abraham will be fulfilled. God will keep every single promise he ever made to the people of Israel. And the reason why that matters to you is because it relates to the very character of God himself, doesn't it? What I mean is, if God could elect Israel and make sovereign, eternal promises to them and even swear on his own glory that he will keep them and then fail to keep them, we have zero guarantee that he will keep his promises to us. But if God, or should I say, when God intervenes in a future global exodus and brings his people home, under a kingdom, under the Messiah, we know that our own election is also secure. That's very reasonable. It's very logical. And so what I want to do is I want to back up. And I want to look at the three fundamental ways, the logical ways that Isaiah sought to move his people to repentance and trust. These are in your notes. These are going to go super fast. But three fundamental ways to move a people to repent and trust in Yahweh alone. To do that, number one, you must display the faithfulness and dependability of Yahweh. To get people to repent and trust in Yahweh, you must show them that Yahweh is faithful and dependable. That's exactly what Isaiah does in part one of the song, doesn't he? That God is kind to sinners. And he keeps his promises to them. And that he can, and that he should, and that he must be trusted. Do you believe that this morning? That God, that promises made, promises kept, the best is yet to come. What does it mean that God is faithful? What does it mean that he is dependable other than that his infinite character and all of his innumerable perfections that make him who he is free us to flee from our sin and take him at his word? Number two. To move a people to repent and trust, you must remind them of their failures and their depravity. You must remind them of their failures and their depravity, which sounds negative and critical, but that's exactly what Isaiah did in part two of the song. And what I mean is, and what I see Isaiah doing is, is that he very simply reminds us that all we are on our own, by ourselves, are spiritual cripples and beggars of grace. That the first true step to real mental health and lasting joy is to remind us that we are great sinners who desperately need a Savior. Do you believe that this morning? And number three, to move a people to repentance and trust, you must remind them of the freedom and deliverance coming in the future. The freedom and deliverance coming in the future, and by that I mean the freedom of the future kingdom of Jesus Christ, when sin is slain, when death is defeated, and we dine with the king and the splendor of his kingdom, when all things will be as they ought to be, and the planet becomes again like the Garden of Eden, because hear me when I say there is nothing in this life that makes missing that worth it in the end. And so behold then the prophet Isaiah's power of persuasion. What this is is logical theology, musical doctrine, and the ultimate power to persuade us to trust in him alone. Let's pray. 
O Lord, such sacred treasures found in texts that we would have never chosen to read on our own. And these are not easy. These are hard, multi-layered, multifaceted. They demand and expect much of us. These are ornery texts, stubborn texts. And yet, Lord, what joy they contain. They are jerky texts. They are hard to chew. And yet, Lord, how delicious they are. Oh, Lord, please kindle in us an appetite for eternity. Develop in us, O oh Lord, a, a taste for the fine cuisine of eschatology. Would you please use texts like this and other texts to, to cultivate within us radical hope and invincible faith and unconquerable joy? I pray that for these people, that they would be a people of radical hope, invincible faith, and unconquerable joy. Help us. We're just people. And so we need you to intervene with your word and help us be those kinds of people, always and only for the display of your glory. And it's in your son's matchless name we pray.